we've had a, a sense that we can handle this on our own, which is the opposite of your work and my work, right? That you can sort of gratitude journal yourself to death, that you had to sort of seek happiness, the nice house. It's getting to the top of the pyramid at work. It's having the 2.5 children. And then when we do those extrinsic goals, a lot of women say to me, well, what, what's next? I did all that and I'm still unhappy. Welcome back to The Fix, your career playbook for the new world of work. I'm your host, Michelle King, and every week I share insights, research, and actionable tips for how to advance at work without losing yourself. Before we start, just a quick request. If you like my podcast, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review. You can also sign up to my monthly newsletter and get in touch at thefixpodcast.org. In the old world of work, employees were encouraged to base their job choices solely on a salary, job title, or hierarchical level, what academics refer to as objective career success. But our definition of career success has changed because careers have transitioned from the traditional career ladder to what we call a protein career. No longer is a linear career path or job for life considered a measure of success. Our definition of career success has changed because careers have. The root word for success comes from the Latin exitus, which means to exit. Career success is the contribution we make. It's everything we leave behind. Making a contribution is knowing that what you did, whether it's completing a task, project or role, and how you did it, positively impacted your teammates and your organisation. Meaningful work is the degree to which a person experiences their job as valuable and worthwhile beyond simply completing a task. For work to be meaningful, we need to identify our contribution beyond the tasks we perform or the results we achieve. Meaning isn't handed to us by our workplaces, it's something we discover in learning how we work together. Despite the common myth that our salary and wealth should predict our happiness, Research finds that the quality of our relationships in life and work actually does. A 2015 academic review of over 1,336 research studies finds that other people matter most when it comes to our happiness. People derive a sense of meaning at work through their connections to others. Most of us want more meaning and badly. A 2018 study by BetterUp surveyed 2,285 American professionals and found that 9 out of 10 employees, regardless of their job level, tasks or salary, were willing to trade a percentage of their lifetime earnings for greater meaning at work. Moreover, participants were willing to forego 23% of their total future earnings, almost as much as people spend on housing, to have a job that gave them meaning. On today's episode, I'm interviewing my dear friend and New York Times best-selling author of Fair Play, Eve Rodsky on how we can find greater meaning in life and work. Obviously, you are an incredible author. You've written Unicorn Space, which for me was just almost the permission slip, right, to go out there and explore your identity outside of motherhood, outside of even work, right, really trying to almost be a whole person. And I found it really insightful, and I just wonder from your perspective, like starting at home, thinking about, you know, how you find greater meaning. Can you share, you know, a little bit about what Unicorn Space is and kind of your take on on living a meaningful life? 
Yeah, I think one of the most important things that has happened on this journey of research for a lot of people ask me, why did you write a book about creativity and identity after a book about the gender division of labor in the home? But so many women were saying things to me like, well, if I find more time because you give me greater equity in the home in terms of unpaid labor tasks, what would I do at that time? And Michelle, I found that very alarming that so many women, especially what I call the tenure passion gap, if women had sort of given up any role, any sense of themselves outside of their roles as a parent, a partner, or a professional for more than 10 years, that question was even more painful for people. What would I do with this creative time? You know, what is meaning to me? Uh, I would ask women what their values are, and they would say family and friends. They would continue to just repeat their roles and wear their kids' names around their neck or the word mom. A lot of women found it very alarming that I would just wear my initial around my neck and not my children's initials around my neck. And so a lot of this alarm in my research for Fair Play was why I got to this book called Unicorn Space, this idea that women were telling me they did not believe they had any permission to be unavailable from their role. And one of the, my favorite questions was asking women who had children to picture the phone ringing and it was the school and not to pick up. And these women in these surveys would report stress responses just from that question. You know, their heart would pound even in thinking about not picking up for their schools. So why do I think that's important? Because I think what has happened is we've had a, a sense that we can handle this on our own, which is the opposite of your work and my work, right? That you can sort of gratitude journal yourself to death, that you had to sort of seek happiness. And we've been told, right, that's extrinsic goals. It's the nice house. It's getting to the top of the pyramid at work. It's having the 2.5 children. And then when we do those extrinsic goals, a lot of women say to me, well, what, what's next? I did all that and I'm still unhappy. One thing I just wanted to say about the search for meaning was I think it's very important to understand what mental health means. And so my second book really delves into this fact that we've been on this search for happiness that is incredibly counterproductive to happiness, really similar to the meaning conversation we're having. What we should be looking for is the true mental health, which is having an appropriate emotion at an appropriate time and having the ability and strength to weather it. And the ability and strength to weather it is what I call unicorn space. It's also this bigger idea of what meaning is. I think that's the most important baseline. If nobody else takes anything else out of this, except for saying to your child, I just want you to be happy or to yourself, I want me to be happy is really the wrong paradigm. The way to start looking at meaning is really this idea of mental health, which is we have appropriate emotions at appropriate times, but we need abilities and strength to be able to weather those emotions. I came across some literature on the five sort of primary needs people have of their workplace. We never, ever think of it like this, right? We think of job title, manager, but actually there's a core set of needs everybody has when it comes to work. So the first is psychological and physical safety, which is a bit of a given, right? Mandatory requirement. Then it's belonging. So do you feel connected to the people you work with? Do you feel accepted by them? Then it's looking at, do you feel like you can make a contribution that that contribution will be valued? Then it's, do you think you can learn and grow? And then it's, do you feel you'll be recognized for the contribution you make? And in making that contribution, you need a level of autonomy, right, over your task. 
So I thought it was really interesting because I think what we often don't think about at work and actually quite frankly until unicorn space came along I never actually thought of creative time as, as a core need that needs to be met in some way but actually it is like there's a set of needs we have to evaluate our workplaces on like is this a place that's going to support your learning and development is this an environment where you can have a degree of freedom over how you do your job for me, meaning comes from being in an environment where some of those needs are met. You know, that's what leads to feeling mentally and emotionally quite well in your workplace. I don't know what you think how meaning extends to workplaces, but for me, that was a bit of an eye opener. Oh, absolutely. And I think, again, this gets back to that intrinsic values versus intrinsic values, which is what I discuss a lot in my second book, which is, again, when, especially if you're a woman, if you're not the sort of the dominant gender that has been ruling our workplaces, we have been conditioned to believe that our caretaking, our roles are why we should have meaning that we should strive to be parents, that we should strive to be partners, get married, and we should strive to have some sort of professional success, which ultimately sort of ties on, as you said earlier, salary, job title, all these extrinsic goals. And I think where, again, where our work intersects is that when I started to ask women, especially in this 10-year passion gap, even CEOs of major companies, what makes you you? Tell me one thing you've done in the past week where you tell me that that day you did something that was really important that wasn't in the realm of being a parent, a partner, and a professional. And I would hear from women, well, do you mean shopping? And I said, no, I don't mean shopping. I mean, something that's important to you. Well, shopping's important to me, right? So what I started to see was happening was women were not as able outside of family and friends and partnering, able to articulate value. What drives them? What are their values that drive them? So much that I included 150 values on a values checklist in the book because I wanted people to start to return to their values. If it's hard for you to return to your values or you say to me, yes, I would say my values are my friends and my family, Eve, and that's what they are. I would ask you to start thinking about things you love to do. And that could be acrobatics. Or for me, I'm taking a calculus class again. I know that sounds really bizarre, but this idea of what do you return lifelong learning? And then if you know what you love to do, so say it's, it's tennis. Or as one woman said to me, it's rock climbing. If you can take an activity that you love, that really lights you up when you're doing it, and then you can back in and ask yourself, what values do I feel when I'm doing that activity? So a lot of women, I back them into their values, Michelle, by this question. And so it would be like, I love to rock climb. Do your colleagues know that? No, they don't know that. Or one colleague knows that. Well, what would you like them to know about you? Yes, it would be nice for them to know that I rock climb. However, what would be nice is for them to know the values behind why I rock climb. And so when I asked this woman, what are the values behind why you like to climb rocks? The idea of risk became a really, really important one that she loves to take sort of calculated risks and she wants to do that in her life. She loves the idea of being really active in her body. And so I said to her, well, how often at work do you get to be active in your body and you're able to take risks? And she said, absolutely never. So can you imagine that these values that light you up that you're thinking about, it's not about the rock climbing. If you're in a place, as you said, where you're there more than any other place, and these two values that really matter to you outside work, this idea of risk and being able to be in present in your body 
are things you say you never get to do in your workplace. That's where I think managers can really work with their employees to ask those employees, did you take risks this week? How can I help you with those values? Did you get a chance to feel alive in your body this week? And I'd love for people to start centering those conversations. Managers do play a really critical role in this because I just commissioned a study of 2018 to 24-year-olds in the US and the UK, and I found that 75% of participants said that the number one cause of stress was their line leader. Mm. And I think we underestimate the significant role that managers play in yes. helping us meet our needs. I don't want to put it all on managers because I think they more facilitate it. But, you know, a lot of leaders are leading in that transactional way that doesn't really facilitate people thinking about what are my needs? Do I even deserve to have those needs fulfilled, right? Because we just given the paycheck and told we should be happy. So when it comes to men, what are your views on how men can find greater meaning? Because we don't We don't talk about that, but I think men are often encouraged and conditioned to try and accept the breadwinner role and not explore their identities outside of work. And I think we often miss what opportunity there is for men to drive greater quality in workplaces because it frees them to explore their identities outside of work. I don't know if you've looked at this as part of your work and you can share more on it. Well, I think what's so beautiful about interviewing men now since 2011 is that The fair play work, which is sort of this movement to invite men to their full power in the home so that women can step out into their full power in the world, whether that's in the workplace like we're talking about today, whether that's in their unicorn space, the beautiful, magical space that doesn't exist for women. That's the the movement. And what's been interesting about men in the movement is that a lot of them actually don't know about Robert Waldinger's work, which is actually the number one clicked on TED Talk in the world. And we know from this beautiful longitudinal study at Harvard that For men, especially women, it's more complicated, but for men, you can predict whether they're alive at 85 based on the quality of relationships at 55. I mean, I'm simplifying it. You should watch the TED talk. But I think that the beauty of that in terms of meaning for men is the quality of relationships are not just creating meaning for men. They are keeping them alive. And so again, when we put men in these boxes of just their roles as a breadwinner or an occasional parent, then we are helping them sacrifice those relationships relationships that are keeping them alive. And so the beauty of, I think, meaning for men, and I've seen it now over, again, the course of my LinkedIn, you know, speaking about LinkedIn, I think the beauty if I look up my LinkedIn profile and see the messages I've gotten from men all over the world. It's been so beautiful, this idea of I read Fair Play or I want to let you know I've committed to domestic work. I'm the one now who is responsible for all the medical appointments for my children, all the dental appointments for my children. You told me to know the name of my child's dentist, but I do more than that. I'm the one who's owning those appointments. I take my kids to those appointments. And in fact, by taking my kids to those appointments, I've learned my oldest has a girlfriend. I've learned that my youngest is afraid of spiders. I've learned that my daughter doesn't like to go to my mom's house because she's always talking about what she wears in her body. So these are all real things I've heard from men about being able to step into their power in the home. Now, one thing I do want to say is that you and I always talk about a paradigm. And so what the movement of fair play and unicorn space has become is this idea that we need for men to have fair play for them to have the opportunity to be able to say, I'm leaving early without being penalized to take my child to the doctor. We have to be able to have fair say. We're around them. They have people in leadership that also do that. 
And so they're also learning what that means. And I think what happens if those people come together, meaning that if you're a white man with a stay-at-home partner, which many leaders are, that the people around them, you're not just somebody who, even if you have a stay-at-home partner, is doing the work from the home, but you're also working with people in the fair say in leadership that are not white men with stay-at-home wives who have caregiving responsibilities and you can empathize more with them. So that is a long answer to say that I think for men, it's actually pretty simple. It's allowing them to step out into their full power in the home and these other areas to be able to enhance the quality of their relationships. I love that. And Eve, taking it back to women for a minute, you're a working mom and you want to carve out more time to explore your interests outside of work and being and motherhood, right? Where do you start? So if you're in a home environment that doesn't have a ton of equity, like obviously read fair play, get the cards, do it. But outside of that, like what would be the next step? For starting to do it because I know for a lot of women there's the guilt there's the feeling of I'm taking away from others am I being selfish like there's a lot of that that comes into play how do you balance that guilt with trying to do work or trying to pursue interests or trying to pursue a creative side that is meaningful to you such a great question. And I think that it's always that balance, right, Michelle, of understanding that you have to be able to take agency in your own life, even though you are breathing polluted air. What I want to say about that is we are living in systems that make it very, very hard for women to have any creative time because we've made it the most difficult in, in the history of motherhood to be a working mother right now. So I just want to acknowledge that. But why I think creativity is not optional is because creativity is not optional. And so I think if we start looking at it, the same way we look at our mammogram, it starts to change. If I can tell you that the more you invest in being able to pursue things that make you feel alive, and if you're still not sure what those activities are, they have three things. They have curiosity, connection with others, and completion. And so that that cycle of being consistently interested in your own life, Michelle, is really the only thing that we can see now is leading to those long-term dopamine response it's keeping cortisol down. So if people don't believe me and say, ah, oh, you're just giving me something else to do. What I will say to you is I'm giving you a prescription for your mental and physical health. We said earlier, mental health is having an appropriate emotion at an appropriate time with the ability and strength to weather it. The ability and strength to weather it is this idea of unicorn space, having a practice of curiosity, connection, and completion. So where do you start? Well, what I would say is my favorite thing to say is start with which C feels most lacking. So if I say to you, what are you curious about? And you say, I have no ideas. One woman said to me, the only thing I'm curious about is why my new baby's poop is yellow. That's not the curiosity we're talking about. If you're having a hard time with curiosity, start there. If you feel lonely, then you start with connection. So you can start with curiosity connection. If you're somebody like many, many type A women that have many dreams, And we may be, as my friend said, a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams because she has 20 GoDaddy accounts and different domain names she's registered. Then completion would be a place to start. So I'll give you an example. There was a woman who said, I took that advice. I realized it was connection that I was missing. She didn't have anything to go back to. So her unicorn space wasn't like an old chess practice or back ballet dancing that she did as a kid. She didn't have any of that. But what she said to me is, I saw a Facebook group for Far Rockaway, that's the Queens, Brooklyn area. It was a polar bear group to jump into the Atlantic Ocean in the winter. 
So she signed up for this group. She said, I'm curious what it would feel like to jump into the Atlantic Ocean in the winter. So check. She connected with other people. So she knew she was going to share this experience with others, which is a big part of those dopamine mental health responses. We need to share ourselves with the world. And then she completed a cycle of jumping into the Atlantic Ocean with the polar bear group on that day. Yes, she has young kids. Yes, it was hard for her to leave them on a Saturday, but that is where you start. And so I would say that that's where I want people to understand how are they feeling right now? Are you feeling a lack of curiosity? Are you feeling a lack of connection or do you feel like completing something is really hard? And then I would say you start there. You start thinking about that piece of your life. I've got a couple more questions. So one is just on companies. So what have you seen workplaces do well that maybe other companies can think about doing when it comes to this topic? Oh my gosh. I've seen companies do some really, really fun things around a creativity practice now. So Now that people are getting back in person, we're seeing unicorn space rooms or or not necessarily that that title, but this idea of, you know, rooms that have makers labs in them that have sort of arts and crafts set up. But I think what's actually even more interesting is if you take the paradigm, if you believe me that the research shows that there's a lot of really important benefits for your mental health from fostering curiosity, connection with others and Uh, that beautiful feeling of, I can't believe I just did that, that completion. The most interesting thing I've seen is there are some companies who are are piloting and they, yes, they are health companies. So they're more likely to maybe be first actors in this space that are telling me that they're using that paradigm, curiosity, connection, and completion to design their office spaces. So what do I mean by that? Well, what do you need to be curious? So there'll be new office spaces that are coming back saying, I know people don't want to be here. So they're doing library rooms. They're having resource rooms the way a college or a high school would look. Connection areas are those meetup places where you say you're coming to the office specifically for connection. And completion is saying this open office plan has not allowed anybody to complete their work. Completely distracting. It's a one size fits all. So having these pods, booths for really quiet work, I almost feel like it's they're designing for what a school or a library would look like, which has done well for us. Schools and libraries are very successful. And I love that there are some new workplaces that are taking cues from those that there's different needs at different times. And if you want to feel curious, connected or complete something, or actually you need really different spaces for those things. What would you say if a mom gets that they need unicorn space, but they don't have the time? This is really important. And this comes from my work with Dr. Becky. She is a developmental psychologist who has over 2 million followers. And if you have children, you may have come across her work. But we often talk about together this idea that guilt and shame are really interesting in how they work on women. So what I found in my research is that guilt and shame are really the only two emotions that women are willing to act on right away. They can be angry and sad and sit in that sadness, but they'll tell me if they feel guilt. So for example, one woman who's a single mother said she really carved out the time to have in her building is a music room because she lives in a rent-stabilized building where Juilliard students live. She carved out an hour of time. The sun started setting. She abandoned her hour of music practice to go get her son from his daycare, because she knows he doesn't like being there in the dark, gets really dark early in New York, right? So what I saw was that guilt and shame will, for women, change our short-term behaviors. 
So what I like to say is, can we interrupt the guilt and shame to not make you change your behaviors for you just to feel it? So how do we do that? Well, what Dr. Becky says is that the only time you're actually feeling guilt is if it's out of your values alignment. If that woman had asked herself, is it within my values to play music? She would have said, absolutely. It is one of my core values to make music. But what is real guilt? As Dr. Becky says, real guilt is if you yell at your cab driver and you say, I feel guilty for yelling at my cab driver for being in traffic because it's out of alignment with my values to yell at someone who's trying to help me. What is it then if it's not guilt? What was that woman feeling if it wasn't guilt? Because it was within her alignment of her values to practice music. What she was feeling was somebody else's distress. And so she was anticipating the distress of her child. And so again, what Dr. Becky says to the finding that I found that women will change their short-term behaviors in ways that are not helpful for their long-term mental health, she will say, if you can distinguish between real guilt and someone else's distress, you're going to make a huge difference in your life. What do I mean by that? That child's distress. Absolutely. That child may be distressed for being in daycare when it's dark. You can empathize with that person's distress, but you don't need to take it on. You can say, I'm living in my alignment. That person has distress. I'm going to allow them to have that distress, but I'm going to keep it in their court because it's not my distress. And so I think if we can make that distinction, we can start to start realigning things that matter to us. And that has been a very, very big and important practice for me, um, especially again, as I've worked with Dr. Becky on how we have been able to use our research to align with the difference between real guilt versus this other thing that we don't need to carry. That's been a very helpful practice for me as I pursue my creative life. So many people, they want to follow your work. They want to know what's next. Is there anything you can share about what's coming up or how they can support your work? Yes, please, please just, you know, you can follow us on Fair Play Life. We have Fair Play Policy Institute on, on LinkedIn. Really what we're doing is we are trying to put some of these individualistic practices into systems change. And so obviously, especially for America, that means better paid leave, having a federal paid leave policy, having access to daycare. But it also means other things. We're looking at laws that can start to prevent companies from what we call family responsibilities discrimination. We don't want people to be able to fire women, men, any gender for saying that they have to care give for others. It's helping to value care uh, in our agendas when we look at how we plan our government budgets. It's looking at, you know, do we start to measure care and caregiving in our gross domestic product in different countries? So we're looking at really big issues around these areas. So I would say, please help us in that movement by following and supporting our care movement. And then the last thing I would just say is that you having your own creative life as women helps us in the movement. It really does help us in the movement because the more that you stay healthy, the more that you can advocate for change. And we need you to be mentally and physically healthy out there. And I know the world is conspiring against your mental and physical health, and we do not want you to burn out. We are the communities we work in, which means we have the potential to create a meaningful experience by engaging in behaviours that support our community. A 2020 academic study published in the Journal of Theoretical Social Psychology finds that we enhance our commitment to our workplaces when we engage in behaviours that support our co-workers, either remotely or in person. 
The more you pay it forward at work, the more meaning you derive from your work and the more committed you're likely to feel. We pay it forward when we help someone because that encourages them to help someone else. But this research study also found that when you observe one person helping another person, you'll reward the helpful person. So the more you help others, the more you build a reputation as a helpful person, which increases the likelihood that people will help you, rendering them helpful people. Your teammates will support you if they know that you have their best interests in mind. When you pay it forward, your behaviors demonstrate that you're trustworthy, which activates the rule of reciprocity. Additionally, research finds that the more help a person receives at work, the more positive their overall behaviors are likely to be. When we help others, it decreases the likelihood our teammates will engage in negative behaviors that might be harmful to us, like harassing, discriminating, or excluding others. The more help you receive, the more help you're likely to offer your teammates, which increases the strength of your relationships and the meaning you derive from work. When we pay it forward, we demonstrate we're trustworthy, which strengthens our relationships. And the stronger your relationships are at work, the more likely you'll feel connected to your workplace, which increases how meaningful your job is. Aside from sleep, work is where we spend the most number of our waking hours over our lifetime. How we experience work is how we experience a considerable amount of our lives, which is why managing the meaning we derive from work is essential to our overall life satisfaction. Knowing how your workplace works is how you can begin to make it work for everyone. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. A quick one for anybody who has ordered a copy of my new book, How Work Works. I've got something special in store for you. Selena and I have built a career e-journal, which has over 52 exercises, one for every week of the year, as well as advice and tips for managing your career. You can access and download the career e-journal from my website at michellepking.com. Lastly, a quick one before you go. If you love this podcast and you want more, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review. Your support means so much to me. If you're interested in partnering with me or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through my website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to my monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch you all again next week.